we got to the end of verse 24 last week, where this group comes and begins their dialogue with John, this group of religious leaders trying to find out who John is and by whose authority he's operating. We stopped uh, halfway through that interchange last week to focus on John's answer when he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It was too much to deal with that whole section in one sermon, so we stopped last week, which was kind of the first part of that narrative. We're still in that narrative, however, which means we're still dealing with the superiority of Jesus over John. That's a major theme in this section of Scripture. And verse 27 reiterates the point. John says, The strap of his sandals are not worthy to untie. So apparently in ancient Israel, the disciples of the rabbis would do anything and everything for the rabbis to whom they were in a discipling relationship. Anything that is except untie their sandals because that was considered to be even beneath a disciple. So you could, if he said, run to the store and get me a piece of bread, you would run to the store and get a piece of bread. Or if he asked you to go find a little pillow to lay under his head, you would run and go find a little pillow to put under his head. But if he said, untie my sandal, you would draw the line there and say, no, that's, that's too much to ask. That's beneath me. What John is saying here is that he is not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. So he is saying not only, not only is it not beneath me, but in fact it's above me to have the honor of untying Jesus' sandal. And so John is still very much pointing away from himself to the superiority of Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what he does with his life. That's what's happening in this section of Scripture. John is pointing to Jesus as the superior one. And so that's still very much a theme here. And we saw last week, as we looked at John's answer, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. We saw that when the voice cries out in the wilderness, God is coming on His heels. If we go back and look at Isaiah 40, that's what we see happen. That the voice crying in the wilderness is a harbinger of God's arrival. And so Jesus is superior to John. And that John is the voice crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus is the Lord coming. Here we see in this section, in verses 25 to 34, two more ways in which Jesus is superior to to John. There's a twofold portrait of Jesus painted here. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29. And Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, verse 33. And these two ideas are certainly related. Not only do they appear together in this text, but they're doctrinally related. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not two different streams of Christian tradition. As if there are the Jesus-type Christians 
that are really focused on Jesus and the cross. And then there are the Holy Spirit type Christians that are really focused on the Spirit and His power and His anointing. Some people would try to drive these things asunder, uh, uh, to drive a wedge between these things. But that can never be the case. There are not Jesus type Christians and Holy Spirit type Christians. There are just Christians. And Christians worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is a relationship between the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God, between atonement and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. However, in spite of having introduced all this, we're not going to address all of this today. Again, this would be too much to do in one sermon. So instead, we're going to focus today on the first aspect of the twofold portrait of Jesus that this section gives us. Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll address this second aspect of the twofold portrait of Jesus that this section gives us. Jesus is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And it is next week that we'll deal with the relationship between the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God between atonement and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's focus in on that this morning. And let's rewind way back to Genesis as we begin. Turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We see here in this section of Scripture that animal sacrifices were happening as soon as mankind sinned. And consider other examples of the presence of altars, which were places of worship, and the connection between altars and and animal sacrifices, even in Genesis and early Exodus, prior to the formal establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. Flip over a few chapters to to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, which says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So not only are there animal sacrifices, but there is already a distinction recognized between clean animals and unclean animals. Then Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord 
and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 13 tells us also of Abram building an altar and other places as well. It's not always stated whether there were animal sacrifices involved or not. But consider Isaac's question to Abram or Abraham in verse in Genesis chapter 27 in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7. As they're going together, Isaac says, "Where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" We got the fire and we got the wood, but where's the lamb? Which indicates what? The customary practice of Abraham was not to build altars and do nothing on them, but to offer animal sacrifices on those altars. So we see Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham. We see Isaac and Jacob also building altars for worship, but it's not always stated whether or not animals were sacrificed on them. However, animal sacrifices were understood to be the normative practice of the Israelites in the generation of Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 8, verses 25 to 27. This is in the midst of the negotiations, if you want to call it that, between Moses and Pharaoh concerning the release of the Israelites. Genesis, or pardon me, Exodus 8, 25 to 27. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. <coughs> if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So here there's animal sacrifices again. So it's safe to assume, though it's not explicitly stated, that Isaac and Jacob also did indeed sacrifice animals as their forefathers did and as their descendants did. Notice in Exodus 8.27, which we just read, that Moses assumes that the Israelites must sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. As he tells us. Not only is animal sacrifices the normative practice of the Israelites' worship, but as he tells us is the normative practice of the Israelites' worship. Consider the two possibilities of the way that we approach God in worship. In the first option, man worships God as man thinks best. And as long as God has not explicitly forbidden it, God is pleased with it. Then on the other hand, man worships God as God reveals how man is to worship God. And when man worships God according to the way that he has revealed, he wants to be worshipped. God is pleased with it. These are the two options that we have before us as we think about worshipping God. And certainly the latter of the two options is the correct one. That we are to worship God not as we think fit, so long as God hasn't prohibited it, but we are to worship God as He has revealed we should worship Him. Moses says as much here in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 27. 
we must sacrifice to the Lord our God as He tells us. And Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 to 3 give us another clear example of this principle. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Wait, what kind of fire was it? Unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. It doesn't say which he had prohibited. It simply says which he had not commanded them. What happened? Was the Lord, did the Lord, was he pleased with their initiative? With their ingenuity? Within their sincere desire to go above and beyond that which God had explicitly required and offer more to the Lord? Verse 2. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. So this is God's commentary on this incident. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God is teaching us we don't approach Him however we want to approach Him. We don't come before Him in worship however we see fit. We don't offer to God that which He has not commanded. We don't offer to God that which is unauthorized. We worship God, as Moses said in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 27, as he tells us. And in case you want to say, well, that's an old covenant thing. What about Exodus 8 and verse 27? That's when they were still in Egypt, before they came out, before they got to Sinai, and God entered into the Mosaic covenant with them. We don't worship God by unauthorized means we don't do in worship that which he has not commanded us we worship God as he tells us therefore the presence of animal sacrifices in the biblical narrative and their acceptance by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 God accepts Abel's sacrifices therefore the presence of animal sacrifices in the biblical narrative and their acceptance by God means that God instituted, commanded, authorized animal sacrifices way back at the time of mankind's fall into sin. God didn't just institute that at Sinai, at the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, way back. Therefore, the sacrificial system did not begin with Moses, just as the moral law of God did not begin with Moses. There were things that were right and wrong before Moses, under Moses, and after Moses. And so, listen carefully, and so there were substitutionary sacrifices before Moses, under Moses, and after Moses. The sacrificial system began at the fall when Adam first disobeyed God. 
Commenting on Cain and Abel's sacrifices in Genesis 4, Robert Candlish says, This section's connection with the whole following history, in which the practice of animal sacrifices is manifestly taken for granted as having the sanction of God, suggests irresistibly the idea that the divine origin of the rite is here implied. So what's the point of all this? What connection does it have to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? The answer is coming. Let's consider now the purpose of God's institution of animal sacrifices. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But what if you offer a whole bunch of them? No, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But what about the cumulative effect of offering them year after year? No, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But what if I bring the absolute best of my herds and flocks? No, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But what if I offer them sincerely with a worshipful heart? No, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But what if I offer them by faith? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay, so here's a simple question. Did God institute the animal sacrifices all the way back from Adam's fall into sin? Did God institute the animal sacrifices way back at that time in order that they might take away sin? Of course not. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What then? What then? This section of Hebrews teaches us that these things were instructive for us. They were pictures for us. They were object lessons for us. Just as if I make an illustration in my preaching that helps us grasp an idea better. Or even better, if I were to take out some object physically and show you something and say it's like this. It's a visual that helps you understand something better. Hebrews tells us that all of these bulls and goats who shed their blood were pictures for us. Object lessons. Instructions for us in order to understand something else. So what is the something else that we are taught by these things. We are taught, firstly, that we need our sins taken away. And Cain and Abel, even Adam and Eve were taught that as soon as they fell into sin. God instituted the animal sacrifices. 
they were taught that there is a problem. And that that problem is serious. And that it needs to be addressed. We need our sins taken away. John Gill puts it like this. We need both the filth and the guilt of our sins taken away. That's a good summary of our need. We do need the filth of our sins taken away. We are, as I've said before, like people with blood on our hands. Let's say that you killed someone, but you didn't shoot them and you didn't use lethal injection. Let's say that, let's say that you got up close to them. Not even a clean, sharp object like a knife. Let's say like a brick. And you killed someone with a brick. When it was over, you would have blood on your hands. We're like that. We're filthy. We have blood on our hands. We have sinned against God. And we are corrupt. But not only are we filthy with this blood on our hands, but we are guilty because of the blood on our hands, because of what we have done. If the murderer went and washed his hands, he might not have blood on his hands anymore, but he's still guilty. And so there is, there is this filth that comes because of sin. And there is guilt that comes because of sin. And we need both of those aspects taken away. <laughs> the animal sacrifices taught these things as the animal sacrifices dealt with both of these aspects. In Leviticus chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement, describes the Day of Atonement. There are two animals. And on one of the animals, the priest would place the sins of the people and send it away outside the camp. It was carrying away the filth from the people. Have you ever had something on your hands that you can't get off with water and soap? You need a special kind of solvent to get it off. The filth of our sins is such that we need somebody to bear our sins away from us. And the one animal on the Day of Atonement teaches us that. We need to place our sins upon a substitute in order that that substitute might bear it away. The other animal had the sins of the people put on it and then it bore the wrath of God on behalf of the people. Again, not really, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But it was a visual of that. 
So just as the, the sins of the people weren't really gone when they sent the scapegoat out into the wilderness, so the wrath of God was not really born when the second animal was killed. But it was a visual of that. It taught us that not only do we need the filth of our sins carried away from us, but we need the punishment meted out to a substitute if we're going to be free from the guilt of our sins. So this is what those animal sacrifices taught us. From Adam and Eve, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into the Mosaic era and into the Old Covenant, These animal sacrifices taught us that we have sins that need to be taken away. First of all. And second of all, that the means by which they can be taken away is by putting them on another who will bear away from us the filth and who will suffer in itself the punishment that we deserve so that we will be no longer filthy and guilty. This is what the animal sacrifices taught. We need both the filth and the guilt of our sins taken away. And we need a lamb to do it. And this is what Jesus, the lamb of God, came to do. To take away the sins of the world. Remember I said that just as before the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, and after the Mosaic Covenant, there is right and wrong. So, before the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, and after the Mosaic Covenant, there's a lamb. Before the Mosaic Covenant, and under the Mosaic Covenant, it was literally lambs. When Jesus shows up on the scene, He is the Lamb. Foreshadowed, prefigured, typified by all of these Old Testament animal sacrifices. What they visualized, or what they helped us rather, what they helped us visualize as we watched the priest confessed the sins of the people as he placed his hands on the head of the animals. And then as we watched them bear the filth of the people away, and as we watched them die in the place of the people, this is what Jesus came to do. And so it's not right to say that in the new covenant there's no lamb. We have a lamb. Listen, tracing it through like this, we see that the Bible is not an anthology of random stories, but a unified narrative of God's promises and their eventual fulfillment in Christ. The Bible is a unified narrative which begins with types and shadows and moves toward their correspondent reality in Christ. The whole Bible tells the story of a lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. It's been God's purpose from the beginning, as Jesus is referred to as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
Jesus came to take away our sins. The Old Testament gave us categories to think in, to prepare our hearts and our minds for the coming of this Lamb. And Jesus came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament led us to expect. Jesus put the filth and the guilt of our sins, took the filth and the guilt of our sins away from us when He suffered on the cross at Calvary. Jesus dealt with the filth by carrying our sins away from us. We read in the Scriptures that He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. If you start heading east on a plane, you're going to run out of fuel long before you ever start heading west. Long before you get past that threshold where you're no longer going east, but then you're going west. And even if you stop and refuel a thousand times, you're never going to get past that threshold where you stop going east and start going west. There's that old saying, east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. A pardoned sinner and his sin never the twain shall meet God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west and Jesus own death visualized that reality as Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12 says that Jesus also suffered outside the gate like those Old Testament scapegoats who went outside, away from God's people, with the filth of their sin. So Jesus went outside the gate. He carried our sins away from us. And Jesus suffered the wrath that we deserved for our sins. He bore in Himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins. His blood was shed. Jesus' sacrifice was like Old Testament animal sacrifices in that He accomplished what they foreshadowed or what they pictured. But Jesus' death was unlike Old Testament sacrifices because it is not impossible for the blood of Jesus to take away sins. In fact, let me state that more strongly. But I'm going to have to use a double negative. It is impossible for the blood of Jesus not to take away sins. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 contrasts Jesus' death with the death of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. It says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus didn't suffer over and over. 
Jesus doesn't suffer as the Roman Catholics would tell us every time we celebrate this. Jesus suffered once for all. Because He doesn't need to suffer anymore. It's impossible for the blood of Jesus not to take away sin. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us, Christ suffered once. Once. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Those Old Testament sacrifices were like a wedding rehearsal. We just had a couple of weddings here, so I'm sure all all of us have, or most of us at least, have been to a wedding rehearsal at some time, or most likely in times recent. The wedding rehearsal bears a similarity to the wedding. But at the end of the wedding rehearsal, you're still not married. So it is with the Old Testament animal sacrifices. They bear a similarity to that which would actually one day be effectual. But even after the sacrifices are offered, you're still in your sins. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is like the actual wedding ceremony. It bears a striking similarity to that which has gone before, the wedding rehearsal or the Old Testament animal sacrifices. But there's also a significant difference. When Jesus dies on the cross, it is finished. It is effectual. And what all of the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus' death does. So what have you done with your sin? The scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means each and every one of you. What have you done with your sin? What have you done with the filth of it? You are dirty in your sin. Unless a lamb has borne away the filth. You are guilty for your sin. Unless a lamb has borne the guilt. What have you done with your sin? If there is anyone in here who is not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, what will you do with your sin? If even the God-instituted ceremonies of killing countless thousands of animal substitutes could not have taken away sin. If the best efforts of human beings from time immemorial has not taken away sin, on what basis are you hoping 
that your sin will be taken away. Unbeliever. Hear this loud and clear. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one Lamb who can bear away your sin. It's Jesus. What have you done with your sin? What will you do with your sin? Place your hands on the head of Jesus, so to speak. And as the priest did in old times, confess your sins. That they might transfer from you to He. And trust that Christ, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will take away your sin. That He will bear the filth away. That He will suffer the punishment you're due. Christian, believer in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. Christian, you are clean because Christ Jesus took your sin away from you. Christian, You are not guilty because Christ Jesus has borne your guilt. Hallelujah. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. May we who are pardoned never forget the wonder of John's glorious statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And may we be like those described in Revelation. And I like the older translation here. Who follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Would we be those who bow down in worship and awe and adoration? And will we be those who also follow the Lamb wherever He goes?